Thank you, Murray. Uh, I had an experience today that I've never had before, and that's getting reamed out by my wife between services. Because I told her about the walk, and I'm, I'm from San Antonio. It's 79 degrees in San Antonio right now. This stuff, ice, we're, we don't know much about it. So I hit this pack of dark ice, and I went, whew. So I told my wife, well, for three weeks ago, my wife fell and fractured her wrist. And when I told her that that happened, she, she really got angry. It's, you know, what are you doing out in the dark? And, uh, what if you'd broken your leg and I'm broken arm? And, and so anyway, that's a new one for me. I'd never been reamed out. Murray, thank you for inviting you and Howard inviting me up here. Uh, these are two of my dearest brothers in Christ. You know, you see them every week and it's easy to take them for granted. You don't know how good you have it with these guys as your pastors. And I want to say a word. I say this every time I come here, whatever church I'm at. It is really tough to be a biblically faithful pastor in our current culture of darkness, death, tyranny, and stupidity that is gripping America. And just because Murray and Howard look like things are going well, don't assume they are bulletproof. Uh, they get emails. They get all kinds of stuff for being biblically faithful. And it's not easy. Write them notes of appreciation, not just during October, which is Pastor Appreciation Month. Do it all year long. Let them know how much they mean to you. And they are God's men for this time in the history of, of uh, First President Amarillo. So, Murray, I'm proud to be your friend, man, and I'm glad Howard got away to see the Aggies whip South Carolina. So pray for Howard on his way home uh, today. Give him, Lord, give him safe traveling mercies. Um, so it's always a pleasure to be here. Murray calls this real Texas, and in a lot of ways it really is, and it's a, I feel like I'm home when I'm with you all. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, and the mistake we often make is to think of that as just an historical event that took place 500 years ago. But the principle, the basic principle of the Reformation is something that you and I need to practice every day. It's very simple, but it's hard to do. It's this. We need to take every facet of our lives, what we believe, how we act, how we deal with our friends and families, how we spend our money, etc., etc., and bring all that continually under the inspired, inerrant Word of God, allowing God's Word to reform you and me every day more and more toward the mind of Christ, that you and I might truly be Christ's men, Christ's women, Christ's boys and girls. And one area of our life that needs continual reformation is our worship life. Um, Satan would not like nothing better than for the worship here at First Pres to drift off into some kind of unreal, uh, either too tight or too loose. You know, sometimes people say to me when I'm shaking hands at the door, they'll say something like, well, it's back out into the real world. I always say, no, no, no. You've just been in the real world for the last 60 minutes. Now it's back out into the world of pretense and fakery and lies and masks and that culture of death darkness, tyranny, and stupidity that is now gripping our current country. And um, 
Here at First Pres Amarillo, we need to work hard at continually making worship here every Sunday as real as real can get by continually bringing it under the inspired, inerrant Word of God. Satan would loves worship that's chaotic or too tight and it strangles the Holy Spirit. There was a lot of problems going on in Corinth worship-wise, and Paul addresses those, and he shows them, and he shows you and me today, how to make worship real, how to bring it together to really praise and glorify God above everything else. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 14th chapter, and we're going to take a look this morning at verses 20, uh, of 26 through 33. Let's pray before we read. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds now to your word, that we might clearly understand it, that we might gratefully receive it, and that we might faithfully apply it to our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now hear God's word as it comes to us, beginning to read at verse 26 of chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Please pray with me again. And now, Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But as my words should stray from your word, May they be quickly forgotten. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, Paul begins this text today with a question. He says, what now, brothers? Now, you could translate the original Greek something like this. What's wrong with you? There's something deeply wrong with the worship at First Presbyterian Church in Corinth. But before we talk about what's wrong Let's talk about what's right there. Look at verse 26 and verse 28. It says, when they come together, someone comes with a hymn, a teaching, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation of a tongue. What's right with the church of Corinth is they come to give. That's an important question you and I need to ask ourselves every week when we come together as the body of Christ to worship. Am I coming primarily to get or to give? To get or to give? Remember JFK's famous political slogan? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Imagine a politician in 2024 running with that slogan. How many votes you think they're going to get? Zero. Because we want it. We want our government to take care of us, to give to us. 
And that kind of thinking has permeated the culture and it's permeated into the church. And the average Christian probably comes thinking, what am I going to get out of that service this morning? Take your cue from the Corinthians. They're not doing it all right, but at least they're coming and they're giving, giving, giving. They're coming to give whatever they had to him, a teaching, a prophecy. Give, give, give. So, you know, Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish theologian. And he wrote a treatise that changed my whole paradigm of worship, even after I'd gone through seminary. It's called Worship as Performance. And he likens Christian worship as being like a play where the body of Christ rehearses every week the mighty acts of God. Now think about a play. Some of you have been in a play in high school. What do you need to put on a play? Well, it helps to have some actors, helps to have a director, a script, and what's really important is to have an audience because it's no fun playing to nobody. So let's say what we're doing here this morning is worship as performance, a play. Now, who is the audience? Now, I'm, I'm going to hit you with rhetorical questions that I'm going to answer for you. But I've done this with groups of youth and adults, so I know how most of you are going to answer. So when I say, who's the audience? You say, well, the congregation. Who are the actors? Well, the pastors and worship leaders are up there, you know, doing their thing. And... Uh, I know God's supposed to be in there. Oh, he's probably the director and the Bible or maybe the bulletin is your script. This is exactly why worship is boring or meaningless or stagnant for many of you because that's all backwards. You know who the actors are here this morning? You. The audience is an audience of one. God. Me, Murray, the rest of us, we're, we're the directors, I guess you could say. When you walk into the sanctuary and you're handed that bulletin, that is your script. Those are your lines. So, when you come to worship, do you come think I'm on stage to perform faithfully to my audience of one? Or do you come in and go, what are they going to give me this week? God, shell it out. I played baseball and football from Little League on through college and then semi-pro baseball. Go Rangers! <laughs> Last night, oh man. Uh, oh. oh yeah, but it's not over. It's not over. I haven't recovered from the 2011 series. I was living in Dallas. We had that thing... Twice, one stroke. Okay, I'm getting off key here. I'm becoming like the Corinthians and getting ecstatically off key here. Okay, um, a good athlete will tell you what's most fulfilling after game. It's not going two for three at the plate. It's not even winning the game. A good athlete says to himself, did I leave it all on the field for my team? Win or lose, whether I personally did well or not, 
Did I leave it all on the field? Do you ever ask yourself that when you leave worship on Sunday? When you come here, you've got something to give. Do I give my voice into the singing of the hymns with robustness? Do I give my mind when somebody's reading Scripture to grapple with the Word of God and on into the sermon? Do I give my heart when somebody's praying up there? Do I put my heart into that prayer? Do you leave it all on the field by giving all you've got to the praise and glory of Almighty God? That's what the Corinthians were getting sort of right. But they were off the rails. Let's take a look at how they were off the rails. The first problem they're having there in verses 26 through 28 is a problem of people speaking in tongues. Now that kind of rattles us Presbyterian type Christians. We're, although there are plenty of charismatic Christians. By the way, charismatic, it just means gifted. Every Christian is charismatic. You have gifts that God has given you to bring to a gathering like this. But usually it refers to people who speak in tongues. Well, do we believe that? There are actually some Presbyterians, I know some personally, who are called cessationists. They believe that all the gifts in Scripture ceased with the death of the last apostle. John Calvin actually believed that. But John Calvin's not the Bible, he's not God. Uh, I don't believe that. Our official Presbyterian confessions are not cessationists. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit, that they're still active today, and not everybody has every gift. And we believe that the gift of tongues is valid in the Presbyterian Church, in Eka. But notice what we also don't believe from Scripture. We're with Paul. He says it's the least of all gifts. And the problem in the we get messed up in the church when we elevate the least of gifts and make it some kind of, you know, the top gift. And Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. Now, another way to read that is, not all you do. And he doesn't say you're not a lesser Christian or you're not even a real Christian. No, Paul knows that some people are given that gift. He had it. He wished everybody did. Now, there's something else we need to understand about tongues, and I think Paul's getting at it here. Uh, he says, apparently in, in uh, Corinth, people were coming, and they're just in the middle of service. They're jumping up and down, speaking tongues, running over each other, speaking over each other, ecstatic speech going, where every, it was chaos. So Paul says, if there's going to be tongues, only at most two or three people should speak. And there should be an interpreter. But there are two kinds of tongues, as I understand it. There's the actual speaking in a known foreign language. My dad came home one Sunday night. He went to a Sunday evening service, not at our church. Came home and he said, I saw the most wonderful thing tonight in worship. In the middle of the service, a man stood up and began to speak in a foreign tongue. Now that pastor understood good worship. He allowed the man to speak. And after he's finished, he said, thank you, sir. Now, is there anyone here that can interpret that, interpret what that man said? A Japanese man in the back stood up and said, that man has just spoken fluent Japanese, and he's quoted Isaiah 55. 
and the pastor, everybody turned to Isaiah 55, and they looked at it, and then the pastor turned to the man that spoke in the unknown tongue and said, do you know Japanese? And the man said, no, I don't know what happened. I just got up and it came out. My dad came home so upbuilt. Look at what Paul says the purpose of worship is for. He says it's for the upbuilding, not tearing down, not putting people down, upbuilding. The Greek word actually is a construction term. It means home building. As we gather here today, everything we do ought to be building up the body of Christ, the house of God. And it needs to be interpreted. So Paul says in verse 28, those of you that have this other thing, this ecstatic personal prayer language between you and God, I know Presbyterians that have that, personal friends of mine. I say, do you understand what you're saying to God? They say, no, it's just this thing that happens and but I couldn't interpret what I'm saying. I think Paul in verse 28 is saying, leave that at home between you and God, and if there is a speaking in tongues of a language, there needs to be an interpreter. So Paul here is trying to bring order to the ardor of the servant. Ardor, they're fired up. And we should come every week to worship, fired up, ready to leave it all in the field. But ardor, not checked by order, or another way to put it, freedom not checked by form, well, all freedom leads to chaos with no form. All form with no freedom leads to tyranny and the strangling of the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, a lot of times we Presbyterians, we err on the form or the order side. And sometimes we get so tight, we don't allow room for the Holy Spirit to show up. You know, I, I, I was thinking this morning, what if Jesus actually returned right now in the middle of the service? I hope I wouldn't go, well, it's not in the bulletin. You, 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 you can't. Can you wait till we're done? It's not in the book. Actually, here at First President, we do make room for the Holy Spirit to show up. It's in your bulletin every week. It's that white space between all the elements of worship. That's Holy Spirit, you can come in here. Hopefully, it comes into the other parts of worship as well. But uh, all order it leads to strangling the Holy Spirit. We don't want to do that. We want to leave room for the Spirit. Now, the other problem in, in Corinth, if you look at verses uh, 29 through 33, they've got collisions of people who are coming with the gift of prophecy, and they're running over each other, speaking over each other, colliding. I remember one time I was in downtown Phnom Penh, Cambodia, visiting some missionaries. They have policemen on every corner and a guy out directing traffic, and nobody pays any attention. Cars are going up on the sidewalks, motorcycles. It is a demolition derby. And apparently that's Corinth in their worship service. People talking over each other, colliding with each other with these prophetic words. Now, a word about prophets and prophecy that might make this more understandable. Usually we think of prophets in the Old Testament, particularly as men who were, whose primary job was to foretell the future. That was about 3% of their job. 97% of their job was to foretell the Word of God to the situation that was happening in the then and there. And, you know, over the years, I think the church has learned that it's best to form-wise 
order wise, have probably just one prophet speak. Paul says no more than two or three, and we've narrowed it down to really just have one. That's why you called Howard and Murray. The pastor in a Presbyterian church plays the prophetic role. Murray doesn't work all week, or Howard doesn't work all week at 7-Eleven or at Starbucks, so they can be free to wrestle with a text of Scripture all week long. That's what they do. They don't go, it's Saturday night, got a sermon tomorrow, hmm. No, they wrestle Monday through Sunday morning and leave it all on the field preparing, then they come in here and leave it all on the field preaching. A prophetic word. But look what Paul says. You need to weigh what they say. That's a way of saying it. Don't just believe what they say. Just so God, because a guy pops up and he's been to seminary and he's behind a pulpit or wearing a clerical collar, don't necessarily buy what they say. Check it out against the Word of God. The spirit of prophets, Paul says, is subject to the spirits of prophets. In other words, the larger prophetic community. There's a lot of false prophets out there, folks. When Howard preaches, don't just go, well, Howard said it, therefore I believe it. Check Howard out and Murray, and they would be the first ones to tell you that. Don't just believe what they say. Make sure they're in line with the Word of God. And so these prophets, they need to be reined in as well. Order, checking ardor. You know, um, some of you may be freaked out because I'm wearing a clerical collar. Well, I usually, for 40 years of ministry, I wore a robe, clerical collar, and Geneva tabs. But Howard emailed me this week and said, Ron, you're free. You don't have to wear a robe. But I know myself. I need, my freedom needs to be checked. I wear this collar, I've always worn it to remind me of something. Do you know what this stands for? It's a symbol of the Roman slave collar. The idea of pastors wearing collars is all about the idea that I am not free to get in a pulpit and say whatever I want or I think you need to hear unless it jives with the Word of God. So my theology, my preaching needs to be continually reformed. Hopefully I'm a better theologian this week than I was last week because I keep bringing my faith under the Word of God. That's not a pastor's job. That's a Christian's job. That's what we are to do as, as Christians. So Paul's trying to bring order into this chaotic scene there in Corinth. Satan loves chaotic, confusing worship. He loves worship that strangles the Holy Spirit and makes no room for the Spirit to even show up in worship. First President Amarillo, I think, you guys have that sweet spot. You, you ardor checked with order. Keep doing that. Keep doing it. You know, there are other spirits out there Spirits of darkness that come to skies, the spirits of light who would like to stir things up, cause chaos, confusion. And that's what Paul warns against. So always bring, bringing your life and the life of this entire congregation under the Word of God. Let me leave you with just an illustration to show how freedom and form 
keep each other in check. Imagine you're out on a hillside one afternoon, nice sunny, breezy afternoon, you're flying a kite. And you've got that kite up there, and that kite is swooping. You're having a great time. Along comes somebody whose big deal in life is, I'm a freedom fighter. I exist to free everything. I'm going to free all people, all animals, all plants, everything. And he sees you, and he goes, oh, that kite is not free. Look, he's got that cord on it. And the guy comes up with a knife and whew, cuts the cord. Is that kite now completely free? In one sense, it is. That cord restricted the movement of that kite. Now there are no restrictions. Do you know what happens to a kite if you cut the string? Does it fly higher? Where does it go? And then it's a breezy day. So then the kite is blown along and smashed to smithereens along the ground. The French Revolution, its motto was Libertad! Freedom! Get rid of all the norms, all the laws. That was going on at the same time as the American Revolution. Everybody was getting guillotined in France, but in America, we had a tether. The Word of God, our Constitution, is based on principles from Scripture. So we didn't have that chaos and killing each other. Freedom without form is chaos. Form without freedom is tyranny. It works in the church, it works in your life, and in our world the same way. Every Sunday, you know, when you leave here on Sundays, I overhear what you say. Do you like the service? That's COVID. Was the sermon any good? The only question you and I should be asking as we walk out the doors, how did I do? Did you say your lines? Did you leave it all on the field to the glory of God? That's a question I can't answer. Only you can. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the Apostle Paul, for how he dove into that situation in Corinth and brought order to the chaos there. And Lord, where we're dull and language set us on fire, where we're off the rails, bring us back on track by your Holy Spirit. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.